We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That night had a lasting effect. It ignited everything. A fight broke out between the Pacer team and the fans in the stand. It was like a powder keg. From the corner of my eye, I see it coming. Some people have control. I don't. Our catches in the stands! They want to blame us. These guys are thugs. Fans have such an emotional investment. There is a darkness there. Was worried about their perception. It cost all of us everything. The palace had a VHS tape for each and every camera. I want the story out there. Go frame by frame. If you actually knew what happened, you wouldn't even be asking questions. You're listening to Setting the Pace. Your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Fachi. Karis LeVert, people don't realize how good he really is. LeVert, skies high for the jam. Connell pushing again, gets underneath, finds Sabonis for the dunk in the go. Brogdon for three. Boom, baby! Duarte for three. Big time shot. Warren lets it fly. Yes! Yo, 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 it is your boy Mike Focci, and I am joined by the one and only Alex Golden today for another episode of Setting the Pace. Alex, what is cooking tonight? Well, my wife made hamburgers and french fries for dinner, so we had that before we hopped on here, watched a little Pacers Summer League, and I rewatched the Brawl documentary. So it's been a very eventful night full of Pacers and food, and I'm going to the Indiana State Fair tomorrow to eat a bunch of deep fried stuff. I'm hoping the rain does hold off, but... We'll see what happens, Fachi. What's going on with you, man? Nothing much. No burgers tonight. Had uh, you know a little bit of little bit of chicken, a little bit of salad. But um, yeah, you got watching. that. You got that wedding bod going on. Uh, I I got a pretty pretty decently <laughs> uh, you know just staying in shape. But at the same point, our Pacers right now they're cooking against Portland. No, it doesn't matter if they win or lose. We just want to see production from the youth. And Alex, that's we've been getting a healthy dose of that. Chris Duarte. Looks real good. Isaiah Jackson looks better than advertised. And even uh, lately, Cassius Stanley looked pretty good the other day. So I thought that was um, pretty exciting to see. 
I, I just feel like the youth right now, they're, they're maybe ahead of where we thought they'd be. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think any of us knew enough about Isaiah Jackson because nobody was going to go into the draft looking at us drafting another big guy, right? Mm-hmm. But if he's able to hit threes like he was today in summer league at a consistent rate or just continue to develop that shot, I'm not saying he'll get minutes this season because it's already a very crowded rotation, but I do think that that is going to only help him make a case for getting more minutes going forward because if he can knock down threes and is as aggressive as he is defensively, able to block shots, a really good rebounder. I mean, he just has what Rick Carlisle said, a great feel for the game. But I want to go to the guy that drafted 13th overall, Chris Duarte. Watching him play, man, he is always under control. There's a couple times – Every once in every once in a while, where he'll have a little bit of a hiccup there with dribbling the ball, but not very often. He seems very smooth, very under control. Doesn't force a lot. Definitely feels like a guy that can play right now. I don't know how impactful he's going to be this season, but man, these last three games of summer league have really got me excited to see what he might be able to become as an Indiana Pacer. Exactly. Look, there's always going to be the crowd that's like. Guys, it's summer league. Don't overreact. Well, you know what? I'm finding it hard to believe that Chris Duarte cannot contribute in the rotation on a nightly basis. Because, look, there's still a couple minutes to go in the third quarter as we're recording this. He has three blocks. He has three steals. Oh, yeah, he's also got 15 points. He's got five assists. I mean, this is someone who is confident with the ball. His, his three-pointer, it looks really good. And Alex, I don't know who told him what the record is, whatever it is. This man is going for the buzzer beater summer league record. He's already (laughs) hit three. It's like, it just makes you feel like his, like, I don't know, like, I don't want to say the legend of Chris Duarte because he doesn't have like a, you know, a crazy history. But I feel like he's starting to carve out the, like, this guy is making a name for himself. He was heavily doubted. You know, we're, we're guilty of that just as everybody else is. Yeah. But this man is is hitting big shot after big shot, and it looks like he's ready for the moment. And I know some people could say 24 is a knock on his age. Well, hey, this guy is not shying away. Yeah, I mean, that was the biggest concern, I think, about Duarte was just him being 24 years old going into the draft. Now, you don't usually see that. And I think sometimes, or, or most of the time, when you start talking drafts and potential and stuff like that, we overanalyze everything, especially when there was such a long period of time between the NCAA tournament and what happened in the NBA finals with the playoffs being pushed back pretty much a month due to COVID. So I really believe like we overreacted for sure. I overdramatized everything just because, like I said in last episode, I was just so attached to Moses Moody. That was my guy. He was right there and we passed up on him. I've never felt like my guy was going to be there and then we don't get to take him. It, it very seldomly happens. But With this, I think Chris Duarte is giving everyone a nice little example of, hey, look, I might not have been the guy you wanted, but here's what I can bring to the table. And quite frankly, I don't think really Duarte cares what any of these fans think. He just, he's a man on a mission. He didn't start playing basketball until he was a freshman in high school, I believe. He's had a long journey, went to Juco school, set out, played at Oregon. This is a guy that is just ready to show why he belongs. And he's not just doing it offensively because we know what he can do offensively, hitting those shots. But you mentioned it, three steals, three blocks tonight against the Blazers so far in the third quarter. This is a guy that can play some good defense. And and we've been talking about it a little bit, but he's mostly known for his three-point shooting because it was through the roof in college, especially that last year at Oregon. I'm telling you what, man, this guy defensively has great instincts. 
I really, really do believe that he is going to contribute right away. This was there's a reason why so many teams did call up for him. I know some people are trying to push it back on what Jay Michael said in that episode we did previously, but really, I do believe the Golden State Warriors were absolutely furious that Duarte didn't fall to 14. They wouldn't have drafted him at seven. I've been seeing that argument put put out a lot a bit uh, recently, but no, he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna be picked in the top ten. Nobody expected that, but a lot of people, especially the Warriors side. He would be at there for be there at 14. And the Pacers said he should have draft, he should have jumped up to 12, traded with the Spurs, um, because this is our guy, and we're taking him at 13. And I think, I think Josh Primo would have been there at 14 for the Spurs. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. The Primo <laughs> pick was it was a bit of a shocker. Um, but I mean, Duarte, he has been better than advertised. I feel like he also just picked up another block. I mean, it, it's just this man is producing. So, also, Isaiah Jackson, got to give him a, a real shout-out because the first time we recorded, you know, like I said, he played limited minutes in the first game because he hadn't practiced with the team. They just kind of threw him in there. Well, he was really good against Atlanta. Had a double-double in there. Uh, in specific, he had 13 points, 12 rebounds um, tonight against Portland. As we speak, he has four blocks in counting. We, we, we know that he's a shot blocker. But the three-point game, I mean, I know it was just one three, but it started the game. The Pacers started the game tonight against Portland with a three-pointer from uh, Isaiah Jackson to start it. A swish yeah. one. Ahead. Then Chris Duarte hit a three. Then Chris Duarte hit another three. And I'm like, I could get used to this. The youth is producing. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. I think Dwayne Washington, who, who also signed on a two-way contract, I think we've seen some ups and downs from him that first yep. game. He was lights out. The second game, he was a little bit streaky. This game, he looks a little bit better, knocking down that three shot. I mean, he does bring some nice things to the game. Kiefer Sykes as well. He's got some tenacity to him. I like the way he plays. He's a little bit older. He's had a longer journey, but he's going to get that Exhibit 10 contract. He'll be at training camp. So it'll be interesting to see what this team does. They changed the starting lineup a little bit. Amita Bryman went to the bench. O'Shea Brissett did not start either. So makes you wonder what they're going to do, specifically with Amita Bryman knowing he's on that other two-way contract. I, I think they'll probably let him go. I think I said this last yeah. episode, but he does not feel like a guy that really makes any sense to be on the roster right now with them drafting Isaiah Jackson, already having Goga, Domas, and Miles. It's just they've got enough pieces there. O'Shea Brissett, I'm surprised he's even playing in summer league because he's on a non-guaranteed contract. Would hate for him to get injured, but I think the Pacers probably gave him a promise that they would pick it up regardless um, if he got hurt or something. So, I, I really do like the youth movement we got here, but Fachi, um, let's take a quick break. I know that we could talk summer league for a little while, but don't want to overkill it. We had a really cool documentary that just came out involving the Indiana Pacers, former players, Jermaine O'Neal, Reggie Miller, Von Artest, Steven Jackson, and Donnie Walsh. And we're going to have Mark Monte to talk about that. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everybody, we are back and we have Mark Monteith on to join us right now. No better source than someone who was actually there during uh, the the brawl. The recent uh, Netflix documentary just came out uh, covering the malice at the palace. So, Mark, what's going on? (laughs) Well, uh, the brawl lives, right? Uh, It's the topic now around town. uh, 17 years later, I was just on with a radio station in El Paso, Texas about an hour ago to talk about the brawl. So this is a national story uh, that transcends Indianapolis, transcends Detroit, and transcends sports itself. So uh, it's kind of interesting that it's been brought back to life again. Transcending sports is definitely, I think, spot on. I mean, a lot of people can actually really remember where they were when this went down. Mark, how do you think uh, Netflix did? Did they do justice covering this? I think so. I think what they accomplished, uh, the producers of this documentary accomplished, is that uh, the guiltiest parties in this were the fans, specifically John Green, who threw the beverage that hit our test. That's what the legal system determined after all these hearings and everything. And that's the point that I had a hard time getting across to people you know, all those years ago when it occurred was that, you know, yeah, the players were at fault. There were mistakes made, no question. But the fan is the guy who initiated this. And that's what the legal uh, people, the professionals of justice determined. And, you know, you can't walk up to anybody in a restaurant or on the street or whatever and throw a beverage in their face and not get some kind of reaction. So, you know, what our test should not have done it, but really what do you expect? One thing that didn't get brought out uh, that I did bring out all those years ago. This was not the first time our test had been hit by something a fan threw at a game. The previous year in Detroit, he was hit by something walking off the floor. I think somebody threw a cup of whatever at him. And also in Cleveland the previous year, a fan threw a coin at him during a game. Mm. Uh, I, I remember that. I saw that myself. So, you know, this was like the third time in a about a year and a half or whatever that he had been hit by something a fan threw, obviously he had, had had enough of that and responded. So, and also that, you know, yeah, he went into the stands, but he didn't start pounding on the guy. He grabbed the guy, said, did you throw that? He grabbed the wrong guy. And then John Green's pounding on him from behind. And so Ron just kind of walked back. He just left the scene and walked back on the court. And then that fan approached him, you know, so I'm not calling the faces victims, but they were not initiators and all this stuff. So, um, you know, there were just a lot of details to work out that a lot of people kind of conveniently forgot. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into it. I mean, I, I just think 
number one. I, I get why Carlisle left the starters out there with just a little bit of time left. You know, our test came on our podcast um, about a couple of years ago and just basically said, Carlisle wanted to send a message. I, I feel like Ben Wallace definitely overreacted, but I thought it was good that they brought up why Ben was in a certain spot that he was and why he might have overreacted because I think sometimes that gets lost that he had just lost a family member. So before we get into all of that, though, I kind of want to go back and look at how the documentary kind of started off highlighting the Pacers as a team that, you know, got assembled. And I loved hearing how Donnie Walsh went about building this team, specifically trading Dale Davis for Jermaine O'Neal from Portland and then acquiring our test along with Brad Miller from Chicago, and then realizing that Steven Jackson was that missing piece. Can you talk about that time, you know, frame and how everything just so quickly happened there? Sure. You know, the Pacers go to the finals in 2000, and that team, you know, breaks up basically because of age. I mean, Mark Jackson, contract expired, and, uh, you know, it was just time for that team to break up. Um so, Donnie, on August 31st, you know, keep in mind that trade for Jim Rain O'Neill was made on August 31st. And uh, it wasn't, you know, that popular because Dale had been an all-star in 2000. He had been a big part of teams that went to the conference finals five times in a seven-year period. And uh, I, I remember people complaining about it, but Jermaine O'Neill was awfully intriguing. And I remember specifically a game in Portland when the Pacers were out there where you know he, the owner or the general manager was making the coach, Mike Dunleavy Sr., play Jermaine like 12 minutes a game. Because Dunleavy wanted to win every game and play the veterans, but the GM said, you've got to play Jermaine O'Neal you know, 10, 12 minutes a game. And I just remember a game where Jermaine came off the bench, um, blocked a shot, ran down the other end, caught a lob pass for a dunk. And I thought, wow, you know, why isn't this guy playing more? You know, he just made a couple back-to-back -back plays that opened your eyes. So, obviously, that trade worked out awfully nicely for the Pacers. Our test was not – he was basically a throw-in to that trade. That trade with Chicago was made for Brad Miller. The Pacers needed a center, and uh, the Bulls had, you know, Curry and Tyson Chandler that, that they wanted to play. So, Brad Miller was expendable. So, that trade was arranged. And they were just looking to get rid of our test because he had been a nuisance up there. So – you know, our test contract was about his rookie contract was getting close to expiring. So there wasn't a big risk in taking Ron Artest at that time. But he played so well that Donnie gave him another contract. Um, so that's how you get Ron Artest. And then Steven Jackson uh, was a free agent coming out of Atlanta. Uh, actually, the Pacers traded Al Harrington for Steven Jackson, didn't they? That's how that yep. worked. Um, and a lot of people after the brawl and after Jackson's club incident, we're saying, well, the Pacers should have known what Steven Jackson was about. The Spurs had gotten rid of him. They didn't want him. But that wasn't true either because when Steven Jackson's um, – basically the Spurs couldn't afford Steven Jackson. You know, they're the salary cap and so forth. You know, they're playing – they're paying Tim Duncan and Tony Parker and Ginobili and all those guys. They just didn't have money for Steven Jackson. But the Spurs did offer Steven Jackson the contract after that one season in Atlanta. And um, but they just couldn't offer as much as the Pacers did. And the Pacers were able to arrange that uh, trade, you know, with uh, the sign and trade, basically, I guess it was with uh, Atlanta. So, yeah, he just seemed like a missing piece. Here's a guy who had been a starter on a championship team in Atlanta, a really athletic guy, a long guard who's going to be a great defender, capable of scoring. And, yeah, he's a little edgy, <laughs> uh, you know, down in San Antonio, 
the, his teammates jokingly called him the anti-spur. You know, you had all these button-down guys like Duncan and Tony Parker, Ginobili, and there's Steven Jackson who comes from a different angle. And they used to, they liked him, but they called him the anti-spur because he wasn't so polished. So, you know, putting him with our test and on a young team like the Pacers was a combustible mix. But the talent was so great that you had to give it a chance. You just had to. And uh, so that team came together and Donnie Walsh did a great job. And even the way things turned out, I just don't think you fault them because you cannot predict what happened in Detroit. You know, nobody could have predicted that. And it took so many different circumstances for that thing to come off the way it did anyway, that I'm not blaming anybody for uh, putting that team together. Absolutely can't blame anyone because when every player ended up blossoming and becoming, you know, far better than maybe Pacers had expected, you saw what it led to. It led to eventually the Pacers winning 61 games, and then you know they were balancing the conference finals, and then they came back looking you know better than the year before before the brawl happens. But you know when they introduced how the Pacers got Jermaine O'Neal, when when they talked about that, and Jermaine when he came on our show a while back even mentioned that same story that when he was in the Dick Sporting Goods that you know fans were really unhappy that the Pacers had moved Dale Davis. But did you personally think that Jermaine could have blossomed into maybe not the six-time All-Star, but the most improved player of the year after the Pacers traded for him? Yeah, I thought it was a good trade because Dale Davis was certainly past his prime. And he was a role-playing power forward, whereas Jermaine O'Neal, having been drafted where he was at the age of 19 and having seen just that snippet in Portland uh, that I saw with the block shot and running down there and catching a lob for Dog, you know, the athleticism was there. I thought it was a great opportunity to get a future star. Now, I wasn't making any predictions about, yeah, how many all-star teams or third into voting for MVP, that kind of thing. Uh, no specific predictions, but I thought that was a trade you had to make. Uh, a guy with that much potential when you're basically rebuilding, you know, when you've broken up your team that went to the finals you're keeping Reggie Miller, you keep Jalen Rose, but you're basically going young and rebuilding. I thought that trade was perfect for that uh, time period. Well, I want to go back to our test because I feel like when they brought up his joining of the Pacers and then kind of looking at him, he was he was like, well, you know, they told me, you know, not to get off the bus. And I got off the bus. I said, don't get on the court. I got on the court. Just kind of rebellious. Did whatever Ron wanted. We look at the flagrant foul against the Pistons in the East Finals the previous year before the brawl, him asking to retire that next um, offseason, and then looking for time off at the beginning of the season. And then to cap it all off, he goes to an awards show when he says he's going to attend a funeral. So obviously there was some stuff there. And I know Reggie Miller said you got to have some, every team needs a Ron Artest on it, you know. But with all of that going on, why didn't the Pacers or did the Pacers know there was more going on there with Ron than, you know, what they might not have known, you know, at that moment? Because to me, it just seems like clearly there was something a little bit off there. They could tell that. But is there any way they would have been able to maybe manage it a little bit better? Yeah, well, they knew. They knew all these things going on. And he was a constant nuisance and a constant distraction. But he was so damn good that you <laughs> – you know, you wanted to put up with it. You had to give it a chance. And he wouldn't have had that much trade value anyway because the whole league was aware of what he was about. Uh, but, you know, Larry Bird used to say he was one of the 10, 12 best players in the league. And I agreed because he was so good at both ends. I could remember sitting courtside for a few games where he had it going offensively 
And I just sat there and shook my head because he was dominating on defense and he was dominating on offense. He could post up anybody. He knew how to draw fouls. He Once he got a jump shot going, became somewhat of a three-point threat. You know, he was just a complete player. So I thought you got to give it a chance. And plus he was so likable. I mean, everyone liked Ron Artest. It wasn't like he was a jerk. So you took that into consideration as well. So he's doing these silly childish things, but he's a great player and he's likable. So you want to hang in there with him and hope that he comes around. And the Pacers were getting professional help for him. They were flying him down to Texas with Chuck Person, who was kind of his guide. Uh, to meet with some woman down there, uh, you know, a psychologist, psychiatrist of some kind, you know, they were getting professional help for him. Um, I could never figure out, people would talk about, well, he's mentally ill. And I would think, well, I, what is the mental illness? I just thought of him as immature. He's not manic depressive. He's not schizophrenic. I mean, I didn't know how to define what kind of mental illness he would have had. So mm-hmm. I just always chalked it up just to immaturity. And I knew how he had grown up. He had an abusive father. His father was also a really friendly, nice guy, but I know he had been physically abusive with Ron, and Ron had grown up in absolute poverty and lived like in a one-bedroom apartment in Queensbridge with like nine people. Or I mean, just ridiculous surroundings growing up. So you take everything into consideration, and you kind of understand where he's coming from, and you kind of feel empathy for him. So the Pacers did try. You know, they did get professional help for him. That's why Ron went and laid down on the scorer's table because he had been told, because he had had a somewhat uh, physical encounter with his wife. You know, he he hadn't hurt her, but he shoved her or something, and she fell down, and she called the police, and, you know, nothing escalated from there, and no charges were fired, but filed. But he was told, like, whenever there's conflict brewing, physically remove yourself from that area. So that's what he did. He just made a big show of it and uh, did it wrong place, wrong time. You know, we have, you know, we have come so far um, as a society in terms of better understanding mental health nowadays than compared to, you know, back in 2003 to 2005 in that span. So it was very easy to just label someone crazy back then and not really know what was going on. So I feel like, you know, just like you mentioned, he tried to take the steps, but there was just so much going on uh, that night. And they really break it down piece by piece that, you know, it, it can't, the blame can't all be on Ron Artest. There was a lot of things influencing that, but on a side kind of random note, how Ron Artest like was it, for him to be doing that interview in his socks and just kind of playing with his feet. I noticed that. And I just thought that is spot on for Ron Artest. Yeah. Yeah. Casual guy. You know, he lives in LA. I assume that was his house, but I I don't know for sure. But yeah, I went to Ron's house a few different times when he played here. He had a house up on Michigan road in the Zionsville area, a big black gate fence in front of it, kind of a compound. He had like four or five acres and there was a, you know, uh, a different building there. Uh, you know, Ron was doing things like when I went there one time, they had brought in a guy, a high school kid from Queensbridge, who I guess they, people there felt had potential, but he was on the verge of getting in trouble, was hanging out with the wrong guys. So Ron had that guy out here and had a somebody mentoring that kid, uh, working with him to gain computer skills. And, uh, you know, I guess the guy was good with computers. And they were putting him through basketball training and so forth. I mean, that's the kind of stuff Ron would do. He was a, had a great heart for helping people. 
uh, was a charitable guy. He was great going to youth groups and speaking and that kind of thing. So you got to remember that part of it too. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was off the wall. No question about it. No question about it. You know, I, uh, you know, he, um, he was married twice and the woman he was with here was like the second woman he was with, but he had two, three kids and he was great with his kids, you know, just because he was a big kid himself. And, you know, you saw him around kids and he was just fantastic. I remember talking to David Morway, who was the Pacers assistant GM one time. He told the story that one of his wife's friends had asked her just out of curiosity, like if, Hey, if you got like called away on an emergency and you had a, pick a player to come watch your kids for a few hours, who would you pick? And she said, run our test, you know, because you kids would be safe with him. You know, he wasn't (laughs) yelling at kids or hitting kids. I mean, he was great with kids. So a complicated guy to say the least. I've often said that the most complicated people in sports that I ever covered were Bob Knight and Ron Artest. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could sit here all evening and say nothing but good things about both of those guys. Then we can come back tomorrow night and say nothing but bad things about them, and we'd be accurate. You know, they were just very complicated people. Yeah, and I and I and I do think that Ron has been very open about everything that was going on, and so much regret for how things were handled that night. And you could kind of feel that regret when he was just talking in that documentary because he didn't only just let down Jermaine O'Neal and Stephen Jackson, but he let down Reggie Miller. So. Reggie Miller announces that this is going to be his last season after all the suspensions come out. Everything's going crazy. Reggie's got a broken finger or hand at this point. He's not playing in the game. Jackson starts for him. They are just absolutely destroying the Pistons. Kind of walk me through what you saw happening in the stands because you were at that game, at the brawl. Reggie talked about the fans coming down from the upper level to the lower level, kind of just Take us back to what you noticed from that crowd throughout the entire game. Yeah. One quick note, you know, Reggie really had, he had decided before that season began last year. Yeah. I I know he said that in the documentary, but you know, he had, Reggie had told me in 2002 when he was on that world games team that he wasn't going to play past the age of 40. And then before on media day going into that season, yeah, he said, hey, if you want to see Uncle Reg, you better come out this year, you know. So he knew. And uh, so the brawl really had nothing to do with it, I don't okay. think. I don't know what it would have taken to convince him to play another year. But anyway, um, yeah, just in the moment, uh, I was just stunned. You know, I was about 15, 20 feet from our test when he laid down. Uh, that's when I started getting scared. Up until that point, it was the usual pushing and shoving, and uh, but when our test laid down, my instinct was to stand up and yell at someone, get him off of that table. Uh, because number one, I thought maybe Ben Wallace is going to get at him and start pounding on him, but more than that, he was a sitting duck for the fans. All these fans behind me had a clear shot at him. I figured someone's going to throw something at him, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And then when he jumped up to go in the stands, my stomach sank, and I remember thinking that. This is going to be bad for me, too, because it's going to make my job a whole lot more difficult and going to change it a whole lot because we're going to have a whole lot to write about. And it just went on and on. It just seemed like it went on a long time. I was standing next to Sekou Smith, who helped me cover the Pacers at that time. And he told me later, 
I don't remember this, but he told me I was just standing there going, holy bleep, holy bleep, you know, holy bleep, you know, just looking here and there, things just kept breaking out. And then I was trying to keep my laptop dry because uh, after that one beverage was thrown, beverages were flying everywhere and, you know, you're getting uh, rained on to a degree with stuff. And uh, I just closed my laptop lid and tried to keep it dry. Truly must have been about a, a beer or a soda shower. I mean, really, you know, from, from the Netflix documentary, you could just see from all different angles, everyone's throwing everything they have. I mean, at that point, they basically mentioned there might have been three security officers there. In that, in that moment, did you even see any of them? No, no. I mean, guys, people were just walking onto the court uh, without any uh, resistance whatsoever. I mean, that's, that's like they all ran away or something. It didn't make any sense. Uh, now, for the documentary, we learned that you know they thought the game was over and they were going to other parts of the arena, you know, to work. But uh, you know, it was a mistake, and obviously, I'm sure the league has changed its policy about that since then. But it was bizarre to seeing fans walk out there. And one thing that I noted when I went was watching the uh, so-called highlights of the brawl back back in the day was that every fan who involved himself in it whether it's John Green throwing the beverage, uh, the fans who walked on the court, they were all wearing Pistons gear, either a jersey or a warm-up. And so these clowns obviously thought they were on the team. You know, they felt like they were part of the team and they wanted to get involved. Um, but I didn't think that was really a coincidence that uh, every single one of the fans who was most guilty was wearing Pistons gear. And uh, they, I guess, decided that they were part of the team. Yeah, I think one of the things that turned me off the most about this documentary in terms of things that I walked away with that I was just kind of annoyed with was how those fans act now um, and yeah. after the moment. You know, John Green trying to become some famous person for what he did and talking about how he wish he would have stuck his foot out to trip our test and all this stuff. And then, you know, the one fan that Jermaine O'Neal punched and Reggie said, thank God it was the best miss of Jermaine O'Neal's life. Yeah. He would have probably killed that guy. I mean, just maybe maybe it's just me but i just feel like as a fan like i would not even want to show my face at that point but these fans were trying to become famous and and rich off of this whole incident and it ended up turning on them in the courts but in the media it, it turned on the players and this was what the big moment was brought up in this documentary was the labeling of calling these players thugs and mm -hmm. how you actually tweeted about this is kind of what led you maybe to leaving the Indy Star. Yeah, not really specifically, but it certainly put me at odds with management. Um, and I did leave, uh, you know, a few years after that, three and a half years or whatever. I left in 2008. Uh, I just thought it was the one time in my newspaper career that I felt like the newspaper had an agenda. Um, and people often think that and say that, oh, you guys just hate so-and-so, whatever. But that was the one time when I thought, management had a bit of an agenda uh, as far as you know kind of declaring the players to be thugs that kind of thing and really the brawl kind of tied in with the club incidents that came along later and I think once the club incident when Steven Jackson shot a gun into the air to break up a fight and, that, and Tinsley's deal when those happened I think people revised their opinion of the brawl you know whereas maybe in the immediate aftermath they felt like the Pacers had gotten a raw deal and that the fans were most guilty when the club incidents occurred. They seemed like a lot of people thought, well, these guys are thugs, I guess, you know, but even in those incidents, 
the Pacers did not initiate something. You know, yeah, they should not have been in a strip club during training camp. Rick Carlisle had called practice for afternoon the next day, so these guys thought they had more time to stay out late. And, um, you know, they were basically attacked by guys, and Stephen Jackson shot off a gun to try to break it up. He got literally run over by a car. And then the Tinsley deal, you know, somehow it became Tinsley shooting up downtown where actually he was shot at by somebody and his brother returned the shot. But it was never about Pacers initiating conflict. Uh, to me, that's what a thug is. You initiate, you assault somebody, you, you know, rob a bank or whatever, you know, you initiate that type of deal. And in all of the incidents, the Pacer players had not initiated it. They responded to it, didn't always respond correctly, the best way, but they responded in a human way. So, yeah, yeah they really did. And there was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on at that time that, you know, you're not really proud of. And and I, I want to then shift it to basically at this point, it feels like the Pacers are still scarred from this event to an extent where you know they are not going to pick up a player that has baggage. Do you think that this brawl has still had that lingering effect on, hey, you know what, we're still trying to have that clean image that we're repairing ever since, you know, the brawl happened? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, Donnie Walsh is no longer there, but uh, yeah, you do hear more of an emphasis about what a great kid this guy is, you know, and, you know, I agree with what Reggie said, you know, and Larry Bird used to say, you don't want a bunch of milk drinkers. You know, you want somebody who's tough, genuinely tough. Um, you know, my thoughts about the current Pacer group is they need a macho player. Somebody who's, who's somebody whose personality can affect his teammates. That could, You know, Dale Davis type. Um, you know, I'm not saying a dirty player. I'm not saying somebody who gets in trouble, but they have had a heightened emphasis on behavior. You know, in the back in the day, in the after, aftermath of the brawl and other club incidents, you would hear people call into a talk radio station and say, if they just had a group of good guys, the fans will come out. You know, well, that's not true. The only thing fans come out for is winning. You know, they and that's true everywhere. Uh, if you're winning, fans will come out. If you're not, if you're a 500 team or worse, you could have the 12 best human beings in the world on your roster, and that isn't going to sell. People will appreciate it, but people come out to see a team win. That's obvious. So um, a lot of things got twisted, you know, and certainly the Pacers were under a lot of pressure to have good citizens, that kind of thing. Um, and I get, I can't think of any off-court incidents they've really had since then. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things that struck me, guys, that, you know, the Colts, when, after they moved to Indianapolis, basically every year, one of their players would have an, either a DUI or Mike Doss shot off a gun at a club in Ohio a year or two before, you know, the Pacers had their incident. And to look at the way those things were covered and accepted by the public, totally opposite with the Pacers, you know. Now, I understand football, you have a much bigger roster, there's much more potential for something to happen, but it wasn't unusual at all for a Colts player to make news for something. And um, the Pacers had gone a long time without anything like that ever happening. And think back, you know, Stephen Jackson, before he became a Pacer, had never made news. He was edgy. He was immature in a lot of ways, but he never you know, had any legal issues. And our test, you know, as off the rails as he could be, uh, had never had any serious off-court issues. And they haven't since. 
you know, our, our test did have that incident in Sacramento with his wife, I remember. Um, but far serious type of things that would make you brand them a thug. You know, these guys have been good citizens uh, ever since that time. So I think you have to take that into consideration as well. And I think if you look back at it at that at that point in time, compared to today's time, there is no way that you would see the amount of news stations talking like they did back then, how they would, you know, in today's day and age. I, I find it just quite remarkable how far we've come as a society and, and trying to be respectful because, look, at the end of the day, there was only one narrative that people were seeing out there, and it was the ESPN replay of it, basically, from yeah. that broadcast. And whatever anybody was saying on national TV, the players, like Jermaine and, and all those guys said, they couldn't talk because they were, you know, not allowed to because it was – a federal or it was in it was in the court. So quite frankly, I mean, I, I think this documentary just kind of opened up a little bit more to their side of things. And I know not everybody was, you know, brought in for interviews. It was a very small group, but I was really enamored with Donnie Walsh and how he tried to figure out a way to build a team to win a championship. He felt like he did it. He really turned things around quickly, but with Ron Artest, you know, going into the stands and the brawl happening. A lot of people have been on Twitter saying that, man, they feel so bad for not only Reggie, but Jermaine. And yeah. I, I'm curious, how do you think this whole thing shifted Jermaine O'Neal's career? Oh, I think it helped. No question about it. You know, Jermaine was always a well-spoken um, guy who was great with the media. I, I mean, I presented Jermaine a trophy once for the Magic Johnson Award for being the elite player in the league who was really above and beyond cooperative with the media. Uh, he had, that's something the uh, sports writers, you know, who cover the NBA uh, vote on every year, the Magic Johnson Award for an elite player who is really cooperative with the media. And Jermaine won that. So I remember the first time I met Jermaine after the trade, I'm at the field house. You know, this is before training camp starts. I run into him in the hallway outside the locker room and I just introduced myself, said, I'm Mark Monteith. I cover the team. Nice to meet you. And he just went into like a five-minute speech about, oh, really excited to be here. I'm, you know, this is going to be a great situation for me. And, you know, I mean, wow, this guy's going to be okay to cover. So he's always been a good guy. He was always great with the fans. He was immature in some ways. Jermaine's only fault, I guess, was that he wasn't really physically tough. Uh, he was always nicked up, and there was always drama whether or not Jermaine was going to play. I remember one game, a home game, where, you know, we were told when we, when we met with the coach before the game that I guess this is when Isaiah was covering the team. He said, Jermaine isn't playing tonight. And then Jermaine played. You know, we go out there and Jermaine plays and he plays well. And after the game, I said, Jermaine, we were told you weren't playing. What happened? He said, well, I came back from the training room to my locker because he, as he said in the documentary, he, his locker was next to Reggie's. And uh, he came back to the locker and he said, Reggie asked him if he was playing, and Jermaine said no. And he said, just by the look on Reggie's face, that told me I should play. <laughs> so he went out and played. But it was always, is, you know, is Jermaine going to play? And will he play through an injury and that kind of thing? So, but, he, you know, he was a really young player then. And uh, he did wind up having a lot of injury issues through his career. Um, and it, you, you, you never really were sure if he was really that badly hurt, if he could play or not. But other than that, you know, he was a great talent, 
he was ambidextrous. He, I remember game-winning shots with his left hand. I remember game-winning shots with his right hand. He was a shot blocker. He had that, what, a 52-point game against Milwaukee, something like 55-point 55, point game 55, yep. Yeah, 55. Of course, they were terrible and playing their third-string center against him. But, um, you know, so there's never a doubt about his talent, his character, uh, his intelligence, that type of thing. It was just a question of toughness, but you could, that's kind of where our test fit in, you know, he kind of balanced that out and you had Jeff Foster for a while there and he was a physically tough player. So it all seemed to fit together. Um, they kind of covered each other's weaknesses and that's why you felt like they had a chance to really be special. So I do think, I mean, I think Jermaine, didn't he fund this documentary or isn't he like the executive producer or something? He's behind it. So I think um, it'll do him a lot of good. And it certainly isn't going to hurt, you know, Steven Jackson or Ron Artest, I don't think. No, definitely not. And I, I thought Jermaine was someone that I think everybody left having a bit more sympathy for. I mean, Mark, I, I'm blinded by my fandom for Jermaine. I don't know he is and always will be my favorite player. So in my mind, hey, I, I'm glad that people could see that he was not a big instigator here. And it's more self-defense. He went on a lot of shows, talked about, you know, there's a lot of different angles that show people, you know, kind of putting their arm around his neck, which – was never really shown. So a lot of self-defense stuff. But as we wrap up for my last question, one, were you a little surprised that Rick Carlisle was not interviewed here? And two, uh, can you just speak a little bit about the impact that Rick Carlisle is going to have on this team compared to last year? Yeah, it would have been good to interview Rick. I mean, hey, maybe they asked. I don't know if they asked him or not. Uh, the question people always have is, you know, why were the starters still in the game? That's really not that unusual. You know, NBA coaches seem to do that. And the Pacers did have a short bench with, you know, three players in street clothes. So I wasn't real, you know, critical of Rick for that. But it would have been good to ask that question and to have his perspective on it as well. Because Rick's got a great relationship with Ron Artest. Now they talk fairly often. Uh, mm. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if Artest showed up at Pacers training camp this year uh, when with Rick being back here. So, um, it would have been good to have him. I'm glad they got Donnie involved. I talked to Donnie yesterday morning, and he was saying they did that at St. Elmo's, upstairs at St. Elmo's, right around the time the pandemic started. And he just felt like he had to do it to kind of support the players and to be a spokesman for the team. And, you know, he took the blame for it. I told him I thought that was a little excessive, but he said that, well, I always do that. You know, if I'm the guy who puts the team together, I have to take responsibility for it. But again, like we said earlier, you, he couldn't have predicted how things were going to turn out. So um, I think Carlisle will be good. You know, I think his strength as a coach is putting people in the right place to succeed. Uh, look at what he did for Doug McDermott. You know, Doug McDermott was a journeyman, Chicago, a lottery pick. They get rid of him. He goes to OKC. They get rid of him. He goes to New York. They trade him to Dallas. For like what 20 25 games and because rick carlisle knows what to do with doug mcdermott and how to utilize his strengths uh doug mcdermott finishes that season great shoots about 50 percent from the three-point line which leads to the pacers giving him a contract and now mcdermott's got a new contract so you could argue that rick carlisle kind of saved doug mcdermott's career and that's the kind of thing he could do he could make he, he'll get guys shots his offense will make uh, sense he may not play at a fast tempo, and that was a criticism when he was coaching here before. Guys went, wanted to run more, but you look back on it, they won 61 games, right? And they got to the conference finals. So he will put guys in the right place. 
things will make sense. Um, he could make adjustments from game to game. I remember when they were playing the Pistons in the conference finals that previous year that uh, there was one game up there where he took Jeff Foster out of the starting lineup and put in Austin Grozier, and the Pacers won that game. You know, so that's the kind of thing he can do, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do with this team coming up. Absolutely, Mark. Well, thank you so much for coming on. People can find you where on Twitter? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter at Mark Monteith. I have the website, uh, markmonteith.com, where I have my one-on-one radio episodes with uh, a lot of former Pacers. You know, I didn't, I never got Ron Artest. I tried. I didn't get Jermaine O'Neal. I didn't get any of those three guys. In fact, and it wasn't for lack of trying, but they were with other teams at the time I was doing this. Uh, but a lot of former Pacers, a lot of former Indiana Mr. Basketballs, other athletes connected to the state of Indiana. A lot of the articles I've written over the years as well. Um, and then I appear in the Indianapolis Business Journal every other week, uh, share a column there with Mike Lepresti, so I can be found there as well. Awesome, man. Well, this was great insight. Me and Fachi couldn't thank you enough for coming on and just giving us some insight and, and letting us know your takes on everything because you were there when it happened. So thanks again, Mark. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Good to be with you. All right. We just wrapped up a great interview with Mark Monteith, someone who was physically there during the brawl that was obviously recently covered on Netflix. Hope you guys uh, love that uh, documentary. But Alex, what did you think of Mark's um, you know, insight on that day? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, especially the fact that he brought up the other times that people threw stuff at Ron Artest in the stands and kind of how the Pacers were well aware of what was going on with him and trying to, you know, get him the help that he needed. So I thought that was really good insight because they didn't talk about, you know, other fan bases interacting with our test and throwing things at him. Cause I mean, I remembered when he said that, I kind of remembered somebody throwing a quarter at him. I didn't know there was another incident in Detroit, but really, you know, it just, it just makes you feel awful for this Pacers team because there's been so many times we've felt so close to getting a championship and it's just something always happens. And so a lot of, a lot of like just uh, hurt because as a fan, I remember watching this team as a kid, I really wanted them to win a championship and I felt like this was the year and then boom, everything just wiped right underneath your feet. Alex, one comment in that documentary got me jacked up where I thought, man, I miss being contenders is when Steven Jackson, when he got traded, he said, everything needs to come through Indiana now. And I miss being in that spot where it's like, we're the team to beat. And it just feels like it's been too long. I mean, I loved how, I mean, I think it was Reggie in the documentary said, we had the best defender in the paint in Jermaine, and we had the best perimeter defender in Ron. And I think that that was so key on those teams because you even see when the Pacers lost that game to Detroit, it was like 69 to 65, like, you know, to end uh, the 2004 season. I mean, the scoring was so low, and I just feel like the Pacers had the defensive team to do it. And then you watch what happened last year, and we let teams score 150 against us. Yeah, <laughs> you're right about that. The game has definitely changed since that era of basketball. But I think one of my favorite things from the brawl, and I, and I hate to say favorite, but one of my, the funniest things to me is when Steven Jackson takes off his jersey as he's walking through the tunnel. And he's almost like smiling. He goes, we ride together, fam. Yeah, <laughs> Every I time I hear oh. him say that, I laugh because it's just like, man, like this dude was a dog and he didn't care. Like he was all about unity. 
And he even talked about, it. he said, man, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to do. You know, this is my guy. Ron, Ron is my guy. And as soon as he went in the stands, I just went up there with him, you know, and he's a little crazy. You know what I mean? But I just always love that moment when he does that. Cause Ron is like kind of freaking out a little bit. Reggie's got him. Chuck Person's got him. They're trying to get him out of there. And Steven Jackson just walks in, takes his jersey off while nobody else kind of had that poise when they came through the tunnel. So that always kind of struck me a little bit funny, but I, I really just respected Steven Jackson and what he meant to that team. Every, every teammate of Steven Jackson has loved Steven Jackson because he is a loyal guy to his, you know, whatever you want to call it, his friends, his, his family, whatever it is. He's the guy that has your back. There's a couple little things there that I found funny in the documentary. One, I love when Ron Artest went out to his garage. He's like, hey, get out of the trash. And there's just <laughs> those dogs. That cracked me up. And two, I can't be the only person who thought this. Ben Wallace's voice was so deep that I felt like he was sitting in one of those interviews where they block out and protect someone's identity. I mm. mean, it really felt that it was like, <laughs> this man's voice is really that deep? Like, wow. Yeah. But, hey, the rest, you know, was more of, a, you know, feeling feeling sad that the Pacers really messed up what could have been their best shot. I mean, for, for a guy like Jermaine O'Neal, I think he probably walked away with the most sympathy. But, you know, him being my favorite player of all time, I watched this and I really was just like, man, I hate the lasting impact that the brawl had on Jermaine because those were his prime years. And then after that, they're just – really wasn't uh, a lot good after he had knee injuries. And it's just such a shame because we talked about it. Guys like Reggie, guys like Jermaine, that was their best chance to win a ring. And unfortunately, those two did not get to achieve that. Yeah, one more thing a little bit off of that topic. I'm sorry, but you, you're talking about funny things. I thought I never knew this because it's been a while and I didn't really pay that much attention to like the behind the scenes and the court stuff, but how the prosecutor – knew who John Green was by looking at him in that video. Yeah, and how he said crazy. he said I was able to spot him because he was dating he dated one of my neighbors. Like how what a small world. Like how in the world would you be able to know that? And so that to me was fascinating as well. But you I mean you're right, Fachi. This is a team that just they were so good. And we can go back and, and look at this team and, and wonder if they were the best Pacers team ever assembled. I don't know if that's the case or not because that team that almost beat the Bulls in game seven, I thought was probably the best team ever. But it's, you know, we talked about it last year during the pandemic because we had nothing to talk about. We did like a bracket, I believe it was, on um, yep. the best Pacer teams of all time. And it came down to both those two squads, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe the 2000s team that made it to the finals. But regardless, really good team, really all in their prime, aside from Reggie. Reggie was that veteran that they needed to kind of push him. I love that Jermaine O'Neal said when he got traded to the Pacers, he asked, put me next to Reggie Miller's locker. I got to learn from this guy. And they talked about how he could become the new face of the Pacers. And not right now, but Donnie said in a couple of years, we're going to need someone to replace Reggie. Jermaine can be that guy. I think he was, but injuries caught up to him. The brawl happened. Everybody just kind of soured on this Indiana Pacers organization. And that's why they had to make the trades they did with Golden State to try to clean things up a little bit. And it, that was just a really dark time after that whole thing happened. Ron Artest requesting a trade for Paige Stoyakovich. It just, you know, things just went downhill after the brawl. They really did. And, and for my last part on Jermaine, I got to hear your opinion because this is a guy that I feel like the Pacers, once they, they really wanted to move on from what felt like everybody involved in the brawl, and this guy, Jermaine, 
Six-time All-Star, most All-Star appearances in Pacer history, most improved player of the year. Guy was third in the NBA in, in uh, third MVP voting. Uh, three-time All-NBA player. I mean, he really did the Pacers franchise blocks lead. He did it all, but obviously he had some injuries. But I want to know, do you think because of his involvement in the brawl, did that play a bigger role in not really even being considered to have his jersey retired? No, I don't think so. I, I think a lot of it with the Pacers, they're very selective on the jerseys. They're they too do. selective. I mean, it's pretty much all the guys that won titles in the ABA. The ABA or Virginia then, Miller. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And Tamika Catchings is the only one, I believe, from the Fever that has hers retired because she played her entire career there and they won a championship. The problem with Jermaine is, you know, after he was with the Pacers, I know that was the bulk of his career. He was a journeyman, played with Boston, Miami, Golden State. I'm trying to think if there's any other teams that Phoenix. I'm missing. Phoenix, Phoenix, right. Did Toronto. he the Clippers for a minute? I can't remember. No, no, no. Danny Granger, unfortunately. Danny Granger did. That's Ooh, right. That, I try and forget that. Yeah, so, I mean, he kind of became a journeyman. I think I think really if Paul George had stayed with Indiana for his entire career, I think he probably would have been the next one. But I really think it just comes down to they have to be a multi-time All-Star that stays there for the majority of their career or helps them win a title. They're just very selective. I don't know why. I think that – Too selective. I mean, maybe. Maybe, but – you know, you don't just want to retire jerseys for a guy that got you to an Eastern Conference final and, and was only there for about five or six years, right? Uh, I, 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 I could say that in most instances. I am blinded by my love for You Jermaine are blinded. Leo. I am, and I will admit that. Yeah, and I, and I think that's okay. But, yeah, it's just it'll be, I'll be surprised by whoever gets the next jersey retired. I mean, unless they do something unbelievable, you know, it's just one of those things with the Pacers – they're very selective, man. I, I don't know what to say. I just – Jermaine has a good case. I think he's probably the closest one to I think maybe have gotten his jersey retired or them talk about it. But with how everything went, I, maybe the brawl did have something to do with it because the last thing they want is that image of any player from that era, you know, being a part of a memory in the, in the arena. Also, I know – some of our followers of the show on Twitter are really going to appreciate the tidbit that Mark shared when he said that Rick Carlisle has a great relationship with Ron Artest, and don't be surprised if he shows up in training camp. Now, look, I don't think that Artest is going to be around the team, but I know that we've seen some of our listeners basically saying, like, get Artest an assistant coaching job. I'm like, look, I don't think that's going to happen at all. But just to hear that it's like guys like Rick who had – and continue to have good relationships with players from that team. It's nice to be able to bring some of those guys back, even if they're just sitting courtside at a game. Oh yeah. I mean, anytime you can get a former player in there, especially one that was at the caliber that Ron Artest was, you got to get him back. But I think the saddest thing was him saying that he didn't want to be seen ever again in a Pacers Jersey after the brawl, because that was his darkest moment. And he just didn't want to live with that for the rest of his life and, and see himself in the Pacers jersey again. And then all the guys just kind of calling him a coward for it. And then he came out on national TV, on NBA TV, after winning the title with the Lakers, saying that he was a coward by not finishing it off with the Pacers. So clearly he feels a lot of regret for how things went about, how he handled things. And I, I don't know what could have made a better watch, but I, I think that this documentary was a nice icing on the cake for – what we have seen throughout so many YouTube clips throughout the years and, and, the, and the famous sports center following that and what's all happening. But I do think that this was a great documentary to shed light on the fact that the fans 
were definitely more to blame than the players were. It was an extremely powerful statement by Ron Artest when he was saying, I feel like a coward around them. And, and you can, you could tell that even when we got to chat with, with Ron a while back, like he's so he's, he, he really takes that to heart. Like he's like, I want the Pacers to win a championship so bad because I know that I played a massive part in messing that up. And you could always see him on Twitter. Hey, even when we're not even close to being in it, he's like, next year, I'm telling you, Pacers are winning it all. And, like, he's one of, like, the most positive guys when it comes to the Pacers winning the championship. And we're like, have you even seen Nate Bjorkman? Like, we're we're not coming anywhere close. So, hopefully, maybe, you know, now that Rick's there, we can, you know, inch a little bit closer to fulfilling um, his high hopes for this Pacers team. But, um, you know, as we're wrapping up, uh, while we were recording this, the Pacers did end up finishing the job against Portland. They won 97 to 64. You know, we're not going to go through all the ins and outs because we covered a lot of it, but the Pacers look good tonight. They did. And I just think that summer league it, wins and losses don't matter, but you don't want to lose every game. So I'm happy that the Pacers were able to uh, win a convincing one. Yeah. Michael Beasley and Kenneth Reed were no match for Chris Duarte. And the Pacers Summer League squad, I watch it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Duarte was just a little too much. But, hey, love me some some Beasley. It's, it's cool to see him out there. I respect the grind. But, um, yeah, I, I think Chris Duarte is becoming like a Summer League household name lately. I'm, see, I'm starting to see the bigger media outlets tweeting about him. And the Pacers, they're not one to really get love like that unless it's something that, you know, might be like uh, – you know, the coach trying to fight Goga, you know, yeah, I mean, like yeah. something like that, which is like an embarrassment. So, hey, tonight was, I, I think, a, a fun chat with Mark, a, a fun victory for the Pacers. And uh, Alex, I would just say, uh, can you tell everybody where they could find us on social media? Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Setting the Pace 3. I'm at Alex Golden NBA, Fachi's at underscore FACCI. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we are at Pacers Talk. And if you want to find us on Facebook, we are at Setting the Pace dash Pacers Talk. And lastly, we are also on TikTok at Setting the Pace. So anywhere you guys are getting content, we're trying to put it out for you. Mostly just giving you updates on new podcasts. But every once in a while, we'll sprinkle some other things in it that we've heard throughout the media. Maybe some guys talking about the Pacers or whatever. Just some good conversational topics. So hope you guys follow us wherever you can. But most importantly, follow Fachi at underscore FACCI and me at Alex Golden NBA because we love interacting with you all and just hearing feedback, positive or negative, ways we can make the show better, things you like about the show. And we love getting ratings and reviews from you over on iTunes. If you haven't already, Apple Podcast does a great job of getting ratings and reviews. And we've gotten some in the last couple of weeks and we really appreciate those that have done it. But if you could do it again, we would greatly appreciate it. Let us know what you think. We always enjoy a five-star rating if you can. So hit us up and uh, let us know what you think of the show. And Alex, if you're hoping deep down inside that maybe Isaiah Jackson can play some minutes this year, hit me with these three words. Let's go Pacers.